Happy Father's Day weekend. My name is Brian Chaney. I'm the campus pastor at our Mooresville campus at Hope Community Church. And as Jason said earlier, we're in week two of our five-week summer series. We're calling Summer Blockbusters Epic Stories of the Bible. And so if you were here last week, you remember that we started with Adam. And you remember that we said there's nowhere that you can run to hide from God's inescapable love. And so this week, we're going to be looking at Abraham. And many of you know Abraham is the man of faith. He's one of the pillars in the Bible. He's the father of the Jews. He's the guy that when you talk about faith in the Bible, you're talking about Abraham. And so we're going to be talking today about faith and what does faith mean. And many of us come in with some kind of conception that faith is probably just trusting in stuff that you can't see. And while there's an element of truth to that, blind faith, right, we know that that's not the whole story. And we're going to see today through the life of Abraham and through a story in particular in Abraham's life that faith is probably more than just that, and it's a little bit deeper. I love how the writer of Hebrews says, he says, now faith is confidence in what you hope for and assurance about what you cannot see. So there's an element of, I, I know you can't see it and you're assured, but there's confidence. And so we're going to see today how we can get that confidence. Now, many of you have kids, young kids. Uh, I have three young kids. And so this idea of faith is one that we constantly talk about in my house. And it looks a little different um, depending on which kid I'm talking to. But this idea that how can I trust and how do I know what's right or what's wrong or what I should believe in. And so we get questions in our house all the time about, um, you know, why do we have to nap? These really deep questions. Why do we have to nap? To which, you know, the answer is because you need rest. And I need rest from you, so I need you to go nap. Or we'll get really theological, because I'm a pastor and, you know, all we talk about is theological stuff. And so we'll get questions like, hey, Dad, when we get to heaven, are all of the Lego sets going to be there when we get there? I don't know, buddy. That's a good question. I have to get back to you on that. Or when Frozen came out, the question that was asked a ton in my house is, are we all going to have ice powers when we get into heaven? To which my six-year-old uh, let me know about a week later. He said, hey, Dad, I just want to let you know I had a dream, and God told me that, yes, we are going to have ice powers when we get to heaven. So you got that to look forward to. Do you want to build a snowman? So um, this idea of faith is one that is the cornerstone of our Christianity, one of the, the pillars and founding pieces to when you're talking about your Christian faith, that you talk about faith, right? It's, it's right in there. And so today, through the life of Abraham, we're going to really unpack that and see how that looks in his life. So we're going to be in Genesis today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them on or open them up. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. So go ahead and go there, and don't start reading yet, because that the story we're going to look at is called God Tests Abraham. It's the sacrifice of Isaac. And if you're new to church, you probably get a little squirrely when you come into a building and all of a sudden they start talking about human sacrifice. I know I would, and so we're going to pause before we get into the story because that's not the story. That's not the beginning of Abraham. That's not all of the story of Abraham. That's actually the end, the culmination. And so we're going to tell a couple of scenes ahead of that so that we can get a little bit of context. And so scene one, we have Abraham at age 75 who has lived in the same place his whole life. And God comes to him and says, Abraham, here's the deal. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation through you. I'm going to give offspring through you. And what I need you to do is I need you to leave this land that you've known for 75 years. I need you to go to the land of Canaan. 
And scene one ends with Abraham taking his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot and obeying God, having faith in what God is calling him to. Scene two, Abraham and Sarah are in Canaan and they're experiencing famine. And so they do what they need to do during that time and that's to go to Egypt. Egypt has the food, so they go to Egypt. Now before they get to Egypt, Abraham pulls his wife aside and says, okay, here's, here's the problem that we're gonna have. Sarah, you are smoking hot. Abraham's got game, so he knows what he's saying here. He says, Sarah, you are so smoking hot that when we get in there, if I say that you're my wife, they're going to kill me just to get at you. So what we need you to do is you need to say that you're my sister, and then they'll protect me and they'll take care of me because I'm with you, and so let's just do that. So sure enough, they go into Egypt, and Pharaoh notices Sarah because she's smoking hot and decides, hey, I'm gonna take her as my wife. And he takes care of Abraham and gives him a bunch of stuff and says, oh, you're so, your sister's so great. And God starts punishing Pharaoh because he's actually with another man's wife. And ultimately, as we found out last week with Adam, truth comes out, you can't hide forever. The secrets come out and Pharaoh calls Abraham and says, why did you do this? Why did you bring this calamity down on me? Why didn't you just tell me that it was your wife? You know what? Take everything and just go. Get out of here. And so we see at the end of scene two that Abraham does not trust God when he says, I'm gonna make a great nation through you and I'm gonna protect you and I'm going to make your name and your family great. That means that you're gonna have to be alive, Abraham, which means that he should have known going into that God was gonna protect him. He didn't have to take matters into his own hands, but he doesn't. So they we end scene two. Scene three, his nephew Lot has amassed a bunch of wealth and he's amassed a bunch of wealth and they get to the point when they can't exist in the same place because they can't feed their animals, they can't take care of the servants and all that. And so they decide, well, we're gonna to have to go our separate ways. There's this huge land and Abraham says, well, I'm gonna trust that God's gonna take care of me. So here's what we'll do. If you go left, I'll go right. And if you go right, I'll go left. It doesn't matter, you pick. I let you pick, I have placed my faith in God. So we get to the end of that scene and we see, okay, he's back on track here, he's trusting God. Scene four, Lot has moved east to Sodom. Now in that land, there's this huge war that happens. Four kings and five kings, like Lord of the Rings stuff, where they're just fighting in the middle and there's tar pits and all kinds of craziness. You should read it in your Bible. And in the midst of all the chaos and confusion, Lot gets captured. And so Abraham hears that Lot gets captured and he takes about 300 of his boys because Abraham rolls deep. In the Hebrew, it's posse. He takes his posse and he goes and he rescues Lot. And the king of Sodom is so grateful that Abraham has rescued Lot and the rest of the people of Sodom that he says, here's the deal. Give me the people back and you can have everything else. You can have it all. And Abraham says, no, I made a promise to God that I, he will be the only one that blesses me. I'm not gonna take your stuff because I don't want it to be said that you blessed me, that you made me rich. I want my faith to be in God. Fast forward a little bit to scene five. Now, Sarah and Abraham have lived years together and they have yet to have a kid. If you remember, God said, you're gonna have a child and there's gonna be offspring and you're gonna be the father of nations. Well, to be the father of nations, you gotta at least start with one kid. And so Sarah and Abraham come together and Sarah says, God is keeping me from getting pregnant. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my servant, Hagar, and I want you to marry her and I want you 
to have a child with her and we'll extend our family. So Abraham does because he loses, doubts his faith, right? He, he misses the opportunity to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And so they have a kid together. And God comes back and reminds him yet again, no, 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 here's the deal. Through you, through Sarah, you are going to be the father of nations. Your f- family and your generations to come will be as numerous as the stars and sand on the beach. He reminds him of this, and Abraham does probably not a wise thing. He laughs at God. He says, are you, God, I'm almost 100. Sarah's over 90. You're going to make us parents? Really? We're going to go back to diapers and pack and plays and training wheels and all that stuff again? Why don't you just bless Ishmael, the other kid, from the other wife? And God says, no, I'm going to bless your new son, Isaac, who will be born to you in a year. And he, uh, Abraham just laughs. He just doubts. He doesn't have the faith that he needs to have. Our next scene, Abraham and God are having a conversation, and God says, okay, I think I understand the problem. See, I've told you now four times that you are going to be the father of a great nation, that I am going to do amazing things through your offspring, but you're clearly not an auditory learner because I keep telling you and you keep forgetting it. So we're going to go a little different route. I am going to tell you yet again that I'm going to be, make you a great nation and I'm going to do amazing things through you. And as a sign of this covenant, we're going to do some physical alteration to you, Abraham. We're going to have you get, get circumcised at age 99. Yeah, happy Father's Day. <laughs> at age 99, Abraham said, okay, I'm in. Right? And he goes and reaffirms his faith to God and says, all right, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to get circumcised. And so he takes a step forward, probably two weeks of recuperating with frozen peas, and then takes a step forward, and then gets back on track. Okay, God, I am for you. I'm, I'm, I get it. And now we have the, the next scene is one of the most pivotal ones in the life of Abraham. God has seen Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot is living, and he sees that it's a wicked town. You can read about all the wicked stuff that they're doing. And God says, I'm going to destroy this town. has this conversation with Abraham. And Abraham, in a moment of boldness, says, well, God, you are just and you are righteous. What if there are 50 people who are in that town who are good? And God says, all right. Fine, if there's 50 people, I won't destroy it. And Abraham gets bolder. He says, okay, well, what if there's 45? Okay, all right. What about 40? 30? 20? 10? And he gets all the way down to 10 with God. And they have this dialogue back and forth. And it's such a pivotal moment because in this moment, Abraham is realizing that the creator of the world does not desire blind obedience. He wants a relationship. He's so willing to have a relationship that in the moment that Abraham opened his mouth, he didn't say, hey, look, little piece of dust that I just created 21 chapters ago in this book. Be quiet. He doesn't say that. He says, all right, what, what, do, you, what do you propose? Okay, boom, 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 down to 10. He has a conversation with him. It's a pivotal moment for Abraham to realize that this God, this creator of everything, wants a relationship. Now we get to the end of that and we go to scene nine. And we think, oh, Abraham's got it all together. He's got it all figured out. And he gets moved to a new town where there's a new king named Abimelech, right? Pottery barn name, Abimelech. And 
he goes in, and you would think by this time he has learned everything he needs to know about having faith in God, but he hasn't. And he makes the same mistake he made in Egypt. He goes to Sarah and says, hey, sis, the sister thing, let's do that again because you're still smoking hot at 90 and I need you to, I, I don't want to die. So he goes and takes matters into his own hands. The king takes Sarah as his wife and God specifically goes to the king this time and says, don't touch my boy's wife or else bad things are going to give her back or bad things are going to happen to you. So Abimelech calls uh, um, Abraham and says, why did you do this to me? Exactly the same scene plays out that played out in Egypt. So we get all nine of those scenes and we see 50 years of relational development in faith in God with Abraham. And so that brings us to chapter 21, verse one. And it starts with this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. So this is an intentional test to Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now what's interesting about that verse, verse 2 specifically, is that he refers to Isaac as the son you love. It's the first time in the Bible that the word love is used, and it's used in reference to an only son in the relationship that he has with his father. What's interesting about that is the first time it's used in the New Testament is in the book of Matthew. When Jesus is being baptized, God says, this is my son who I love and in who I am pleased. So it's interesting, God is saying to Abraham, even though Abraham doesn't know it yet, hey, that son that you love, that you love so much, your only son, I know what I'm asking you to do. I know. You don't know that I know, but I know because I'm going to do the same thing coming up soon. We continue on in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but there's no verses in between verse two where God says that son that you love, that possession that you feel like is the, your prize, I want you to sacrifice it, and Abraham's obedience. There's not verse 2.5, verse 2.7, where he's fighting and arguing like we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. What changed is that Abraham has learned at this point to trust God. He has learned that this God who has promised that his line is gonna be through Isaac is gonna do something amazing. And so if he's asking for the one piece that in Abraham's limited mind, Abraham thinks he needs, he must have a bigger plan. And so he doesn't even bat an eye. The next morning he gets up and he goes to obey God. Verse five, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go and the boy go over there. Catch this, we will worship and then we will come back to you. It's interesting. Abraham has finally connected the dots. He finally gets that if God is calling this big thing, that he is calling for the sacrifice of Isaac, and he's calling that he is gonna be the one that through him, the line is gonna be continued and the, he's, I'm gonna be the father of nations through him, then that means at the end of this time, whatever today is gonna hold, we are gonna go, Abraham and Isaac are gonna go, and we are gonna come back. 
And he is so confident of that that he tells the servants, we're, we're just gonna go and we're gonna worship and then we're gonna come back. Verse six, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. So the son who was gonna be the sacrifice carried the wood for his own sacrifice. Sound familiar? It will, because God's gonna do it again, as we'll see in a little bit. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. What an interesting exchange between a father and a son. See, Isaac at this point is probably late teens, early 20s, so he's smart enough to do the math on like we have wood and fire and knife. We're missing the sacrifice part. So dad, where are we getting the sacrifice from? And Abraham, in his faith that he passes to his son in this moment, he says, God is going to provide the sacrifice my son, he uses this term of endearment, my son, my beloved son. God is gonna provide the sacrifice. Just wait and see. Verse nine, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now the word fear here is not the, I, you fear punishment or like this idea of fear like a slave to a master. It's this idea of deep reverence. Because you realize that who is asking this of you is the creator of the universe and you have respect for him and you have respect for him so far that you are willing to give the one thing that you care about more than anything, God sees that as you obeying. And so don't kill your son. You, you have passed your test, Abraham. In verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So we see in the story of the sacrificing of Isaac, the culmination of 50 years of Abraham doing life with God learning relationally that God can be trusted, learning relationally that God is a God that you can put faith in. And so when we look at Abraham, we, we can see a couple things. First, faith is not a list of things to do, not a list of duties that you have to carry out blindly. Faith is developed 
in relationship with God over time, over 50 years in, in Abraham's case. It's not just do what I tell you to do. It's do and let's keep the conversation going. And so Abraham, at the end of this story, has learned. He's gotten, okay, I get it. I know who God is. And because I know his character and because I have this relationship with him, I can trust him with this thing that is huge in my life, my only son who I love. And second, we see in Abraham, we see that all of us on some level hold tightly to things, right? We all hold tightly to some things in our life. In Abraham, it was his family. So you see time and again, with the conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's fighting with God over his nephew Lot, or where he's taking matters into his own hands to protect his own life and Sarah's life, and saying, just say you're my sister. Or when he gets to the place where he's trying to do his own thing with Hagar and Ishmael, and he just, he's, he's protecting his family. And so when we get to the scene where God says, Give me the thing in your life that you hold nearest and dearest. And he says, okay, it's a huge moment for Abraham. It's a huge moment for him to stop trying to figure out what God means when he says, I'm going to bless you through this. He, he stops trying to control and try to go, okay, if you mean this, then I need to do this. And no, he just says, all right, I'm going to stop trying to figure out the miracle that this thing is going to be, and I'm just going to trust the miracle worker. And he gets to that place with God where he says, I don't know how this is all going to shake out, but I'm going to trust you in it. It's a huge moment for Abraham. And while it's fascinating to look at Abraham in this story, he's not the main character. Just like last week, Adam is not the main character in the Garden of Eden. God is the main character. And so when we look at the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, we can see about the character of God, and we learn a couple things. First, we learn that God calls us to big things. He called Adam to big things. He called Abraham to big things. I need you to leave your family that you've known for 75 years. I need you to leave your land. I need you to trust me that I'm going to bless you. I need you to trust me when it comes to your son. He calls us to big things. And the truth is, if he calls you to it, He'll see you through it. And I know it's cute because it rhymes, but like he will actually do that. Keywords in his timing. And this is where Abraham and Sarah missed it, isn't it? They said, God, I know that you said that you're going to bless us and you're going to make me the father of nations, but we don't have kids yet. And so we're going to take matters into our own hands with destructive results, by the way, because they didn't trust in his timing. What God has called you to, whatever it is today that God has called you to, he will see you through it in his timing. Second thing we learn about God is that God provides. This God is a God of provision. He cared so deeply for Abraham and so deeply for Isaac that he provided Another way, he provided the ram. It's the first time in the Bible that we see the life of one spared because of the life of another. And what's interesting about that is that it's not the first time God does that when it comes to substitutionary atonement because he's gonna do it again with Jesus, right? And we see that. He provided a ram 
And then hundreds of years later, he's going to provide a lamb. Now, scholars, there's some kind of thoughts on disagreement on this, but as you look at this story and you see that God has called Abraham to go to the land of Moriah, hundreds of years later in that same mountain, that place would be called the skull. And on that hill, that same hill where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, there would be three crosses erected where the Son of God would hang because God is a God of provision. And he loved us so much that he said, that son that I love so much, my beloved son, I stayed the hand of execution on Isaac and provided another way out. But there's gonna come a time when there's gonna be a son that carries wood like Isaac carried wood, and I'm not gonna stay the hand because I love you that much. He is a God of provision. Which leads to our third thing we can learn about God is that God gives more than he demands. You can look at the life of Abraham. He demanded Abraham, I need you to follow me in this, obey me in this, sacrifice this, give me this. But at the end of all of it, he blesses him in such an immense way, in such an unbelievable way. Once Abraham has passed the test, the very next words out of God's mouth are, because you have done this, I am going to bless the tar out of you. That's not what he says, but it's that idea, right? I'm gonna bless you so much so that I'm gonna swear by my own name that I'm gonna bless you. And we know how seriously God takes his name. It's one of the 10 commandments as we're gonna see with Moses. But God says, by my own name, I'm gonna make this covenant with you that I'm gonna bless you that your offspring and your descendants will be like stars in the sky and like sand on the beach. You cannot outgive God. No matter what he demands, he is gonna give even more. And so what does that mean for us today? Father's Day weekend, 2014. Well, it means that there's something in our life, if we're honest, that we're probably holding on to with closed hands. And we have to get to the place when we start living this way. And so for some of us, it's our possessions, our bank account, our car, our house, our retirement, whatever it is, that thing that if I said, hey, God wants you to give this tonight, you would go, yeah, not that. Whatever that thing is that's in your mind, that you go, I'm willing to do anything but not that. Are you holding on to it tightly? Or maybe it's your work or your career. What if I told you that when you go into work next, you're not going to have a job? You will no longer be a whatever, blank, SAS employee, banker, waitress, teacher, real estate agent, construction worker, mom, whatever that job is that you have, that you think that's my identity, that's who I am. If you lost it, what would it do to your faith? Or maybe it's your plans or your hopes and your dreams and you say things like, in five years, we're gonna start a family. In 10 years, I'm gonna be at the top of the company. What if it doesn't take five years? What if it takes 10? What if it takes 20? What if it takes 50? 
What if you never achieve what you thought you were going to achieve in five years? What if you never get there? What if you never get there financially? What if you never get there relationally? What if you never get there professionally? Are you still going to have faith? Or is it going to be shaken because of what you are clinging to, trying to control? Or maybe you're like me and like Abraham, that the thing that you cling to is your kids. And you say, you can have anything, God, anything. But these are mine. They're mine. And so whatever God is calling your kids to, you try to protect them from. You say, no, 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 I don't want to go, you know, I don't want them to engage in that or I don't want them to experience this or I don't want them to be around these people or those people. I want to keep them safe because they're my kids. Are we holding tightly to something that's not even ours? I didn't choose where I was born. (laughs) I didn't choose that I would meet my beautiful wife. I didn't choose that I would be able to have kids. I didn't choose that. So for me to say these are my kids is a little bit arrogant and a little bit misguided. And so we have to get to the place where we release and say, okay, I'm gonna trust you in this God. Second, we have to realize that we're gonna have setbacks in our relationship with God. We just are. Every human who has ever lived must walk through darkness sometimes. And you know this to be true as well as I do. You can think of those moments in your life or those stories or those friends that are walking through dark places. I love what Mike says when he reminds us that you're either coming out of a storm, you're in a storm, or you're going into a storm. And we know that that's true. And in those moments, in those moments where we have setbacks, where we doubt, where there's darkness, where's our faith? If you look at the life of Abraham, in those moments, those are the ones where God was leaning in stronger than ever. Because God's not scared of our setbacks. He's not scared of your doubt. He's not scared of your anger at him. He's not concerned about the thing that you lie about anxiously because it's not bigger than him. He can help you through it. He relationally wants to get you through it. He doesn't want blind faith, just trust me and everything will be fine. He doesn't want that. He wants a relationship. I mean, think about it. Fathers, do you want kids that just obey you and don't want a relationship with you at all? If your kids just obeyed everything you said but they did not want a relationship with you, is that what you want? Or do you want kids that are at times rebellious and contentious but have a deep and meaningful relationship with you? That's what God wants. See, our kids are not our kids because they obey us. They're not. They're our kids because we love them, because we care for them, because we like spending time with them, because we miss them when they're gone. And we're the same way to God. We're his kids, not because we follow and obey. We're his kids sometimes in spite of the fact that we don't follow and obey. And he desires us and he cares for us and he loves us. And he wants a relationship with us. And the last thing that we can learn this weekend when it comes to this story and this idea of faith is that we can trust in a God who is consistent. We saw last week Adam in his brokenness and in his deceit and his hiding, God pursued him for a relationship. And we see this week in the moments of up and down roller coaster faith, 
that Abraham had. Abraham, the man of faith, the pillar of faith, the guy who when they talk about him in the New Testament, they say it was credited to him as righteousness, his faith. On his up and down moments, God pursued him because God is consistent. And we will see time and time again as we go through this story or as you talk to people around you, God is consistent in Moses and Esther and David and Daniel and Jesus and Peter. The same God that was with those guys and girls are with you and me. He's the same God. That's why the Bible is this living word. It's not this book that we just go, ah, oh, it's real old and it doesn't really have anything for us to learn about. No, it tells us the character of God because he doesn't change. The next series that we're going to do after this summer blockbuster series, we're doing a three-week series we're calling Literally Taking God at His Word, where we're going to learn that the Bible is relevant, that the Bible is sufficient, that the Bible can tell us the very character of God for the purpose that it can strengthen our faith. Because we can be reminded, well, if God is that way back then and He doesn't change, new math tells us that God is going to be the same today. And we can trust in a God who is the same today. We can have faith in a God who is the same today and shepherds us the same way he shepherded Adam and shepherded Abraham. That is a God that we can have faith in. Let's pray. Father God, we lift you up this Father's Day weekend as the perfect example of a father. And so Lord, I pray right now for all the men who are dads in this room, that you would give us the wisdom and the boldness and the humility to seek out your will for our lives so that we can lead our families and our kids in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And Father, we thank you for the story of Abraham, the father of nations. We are thankful for his example of faith, and we are thankful for the relationship that you developed with him, the reminder that you give us that you desire that same relationship with each and every one of us, Father. No matter where we are today, if we're going into a storm, coming out, or right in the middle of one, God, you desire to be there with us. And so, Father, we love you and we thank you for the provision of who you are that you care for us so deeply that you would send your son whom you love, your only son, Father, to be the sacrifice for us so that the sacrifices could end once and for all and the price could be paid once and for all that we could be in relationship with you. And so God, we give you this weekend, we give you our lives, we give you whatever it is that we're holding on to right now, that thing in our minds. Help us to release it. Help us to trust you with it. Help us to know that you are a God who can prove faithful time and time again. We love you, God. Thank you for everything that you have blessed us with. We thank you most of all for your son and the price he paid on a cross. We pray all these things in his perfect and holy name. Amen. Amen.